Hi, this is Sam Garman. And this is Michael Soto. You are listening to Transform. The podcast where we explore the stories and experiences of folks who are transgender. Beyond the transition. One, two, three, four. What did your mom say? What is your real name? How about those drugs that you take? And does your voice change? How come you don't feel ashamed? What kind of love do you make? But you don't care about my answers Your questions ignore me Let me tell you a story On today's episode of Transform Beyond the Transition, we're going to be talking about intersectionality and the trans community. Um, so just uh, to start us off, we're going to give you a brief definition of what intersectionality is. When we talk about intersectionality, we're really talking about the interconnected way that social identities such as race, class, and gender um, apply to individuals and groups of people, and the way those identities overlap and in an independent interdependent way, um, create systems of discrimination and disadvantage. Um, so what we're really talking about is the way that our many identities, because all of us have different identities, right, that we hold at any one time in our lives. Um, and sometimes we add to those identities or subtract from them as we go through our lives, um, impact our daily lives. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, I think most most folks who are listening to this probably know that probably the most dangerous person to be on the earth is a black trans woman. You know that and the reason is that because there is there are so many intersecting identities there. I mean we know that women are discriminated against systematically and are oftentimes um you know, targets for uh, not just discrimination, but also violence. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that black people are also discrimination, are targets of discrimination and violence. And so, and we know that trans folks are targets for discrimination and violence. And so when you put all three of those identities together, you are much more likely to experience those things. Right, absolutely. Um, similarly, uh, perhaps non-binary indigenous folks, right, mm-hmm. who are living on the reservation, so living in uh, endemic poverty, right? Um, you've got all of these identities that come together to basically um, create the perfect storm of systemic oppression and discrimination, right? Um, and so um, today our two guests um, experience that in very different ways, um, and we really hope that uh, you get to learn a lot from their experiences, um, from that intersectional perspective um, uh, about the queer and trans communities. Yeah, and I think you, I think you all really enjoy this interview. Um, it's an, it's a really cool opportunity to hear from people who experience things that you might not have heard about before, or might not have had access to um, having someone talk about really openly. Um, so we're really hopeful that uh, you all really enjoy this interview. We would love to hear feedback or further questions you have about this. Yeah. Uh, this is not the only episode that we're going to do on intersectionality. We recognize that um, this is one of the areas where we could do four full seasons of Absolutely. just stories about intersectionality as yeah. it relates to trans folks. Yeah. Uh, so we will do more of more of these episodes, um, but just know that uh, we're excited to share this episode with you. Very much so. And we also, uh, I think Sam and I both really believe that uh, fundamentally the trans community and the queer communities are intersectional communities uh, because you find trans and queer folks in every walk of life. Um, and so we're really excited, uh, like Sam said, to give it, to bring these interviews to you. Right. Well, enjoy. 
So in the studio today, we have with us uh, two friends, uh, Vern and Dago have joined us today. Uh, Vern, thank you for joining us via Skype. Um, and we are we are going to be talking about um, the experiences of folks who are trans um, who live at intersections. And so we've talked a lot about um, we've talked about different identities throughout the podcast and had folks share their stories. Uh, but this is an opportunity to talk about the ways that different identities interact. So um, it gives an opportunity to talk more about the broader spectrum of experiences. And so, Vernon Dago, we would love to have you introduce yourselves, um, and you, if you can talk about uh, what pronouns you use and are most comfortable with, um, and maybe just give just a little snapshot into who you are. Perfect. All right, so I'm Dago Bailon with Transcore Pueblo. I migrated to the United States in 1995. I crossed the border with my grandmother and my brother, and at the time I was eight years old, so... All I remember is being super excited about the different plants and different colors because I come from a <laughs> very tropical cl- climate in, um, right next to Acapulco. So everything was green all the time. So just uh-huh. to see, we came in September. So just to see like the desert, the browns, the yellows, and the reds was incredible to me. And um, anyways, getting here, right, was complete culture shock. One, because... Everyone in my town looked like me, was short and brown and beautiful. And then I came here, and there was a bunch of white people. And I was like, oh, my God, they're totally real, you know? And, and just because, like, I had never, never seen white people. And, like, blue eyes and blonde hair were something that I had never seen in my life. And at eight years old, I just wanted to poke people and <laughs> pull hairs and figure out that they were real or not. Uh, but, you know, so living in Arizona, I think has been very challenging, especially as as a person who is both queer and undocumented, right? And in trying to navigate all the anti-LGBT politics and all the anti-immigrant sentiment, I think it, for many of us is, is very hard. So I'm just lucky that I get to work with a group of people um, and community who uh, understands what we go through every day, but also who is like just willing to build something together. That's Great. fantastic. Yeah, and you. what pronouns do you use? He, him, his. Okay. And Vern, do you want to tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Um, I'm Vern. I use the pronoun they. I'm. It's always interesting to like tell me a little bit about yourself because I feel like it's like a stand-in for the like. So what do you do for a living? <laughs> um, which is a weird question for me. Um, but I'm white, German American. Um, I'm a non-binary femme. Um, I am chronically ill. So I, um, one of the symptoms of my chronic illness is a lot of like memory problems. Um, so I always take a lot of notes and I have like my whole notes of like, these are things that I would, you know, probably want to mention about myself or whatever. Um, including like as like one of my symptoms is memory problems because that's that's been one that I've forgotten to mention, um, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the biggest symptom that like, has the biggest impact on my life maybe um, and the fatigue, but I, I, I often forget to mention it. Um, but so yeah, I'm a non-binary femme. Um, I'm a dog parent. Rook is um, on the floor next to me being a very good boy right now. Um, I am, I guess I'm a radical social worker slash activist. 
Um, I'm currently a finishing up my second year as a PhD student at the University of Washington here in Seattle, which is very strange for me um, because academia is not somewhere I ever saw myself existing. Uh, and here I am. And before living here, I lived for 11 years in Arizona and Phoenix, which is how I know uh, Sam and Michael. And before that, I lived for 11 years in Omaha, Nebraska, which um, is the biggest city in Nebraska for folks who aren't familiar, but you're still in Nebraska. So that was <laughs> a fun place to spend um, some of my elementary school years and junior high and high school. Um, I mean, Omaha's great. There's a great zoo if you're into that, uh, but it wasn't all great for me, right? Um, and before that, I lived all over the place, um, including Germany. Um, when I say I'm German-American, I mean that my mother moved here from Germany in, I think, the 70s. And the family that I speak to is still over there. So I do have a, a connection to that, which I have really been working on growing as my um, aunt continues to get older. So that's good. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's it. I'm just living my best life as a non-binary disabled femme in Seattle, uh, which includes going to the queer nude beach a lot and trying to survive in academia as it continues to not like try to not let me survive. <laughs> All right. We wanted to talk about how experiences of having these these sort of compounding identities impact your experiences moving through the world. So the first question is, um, like, how do you describe your intersectional identity? So like when someone asks you like, oh, tell me about yourself, like what are the things that you feel are really important to tell people about who you are? <sighs> so much, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I can start. Um, and you sent us these questions beforehand, so I've been thinking about it. Um, and for me, it's, it's interesting because I think about my gender and my existence as sort of this constellation of identities and experiences and actions and interactions with other people. Um, and that constellation is always like shifting and changing, um, including, so I've identified as non-binary, um, since I learned the word through Tumblr. Uh, thanks, Tumblr, in about maybe like 2010 or 11 or so. Um, and I finally had a word and I finally knew that this was like a real thing. And I wasn't just really bad at being a lesbian. Um, <laughs> it's really bad at it. I kept like dating men and like, you know, <laughs> uh, very confusing people in Nebraska when I was like, I'm a lesbian. I'm going to start the GSA and all of this. And I was like, here's my boyfriend. <laughs> very confusing to us all. Um, so I often use the word non-binary, but then something I hear a lot of folks talk about, which resonates with me as well, is that we use different words for ourselves in different spaces. Um, so like my Tinder profile is a lot different than like my academic profile where I just say like, oh, I'm, you know, non-binary, da, 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 da. Um, and I often mention I'm chronically ill too, but I don't give specifics. Whereas if I'm talking to people in my community, um, I will, I've been using the word mink to describe myself, um, which is a word for a hairy femme. 
sort of like because <laughs> um, I've been on tea for like six months now. So I'm starting to get really awesome random patches of body hair. <laughs> Um, I identify testosterone. <laughs> I'm great. Uh, my thighs are nice and hairy for summer. So I'm excited about that. Um, and I've been really embracing, um, the identity of being a bossy femme as well, which I see as a way of, uh, circumventing like non-consensual femme labor. Um, it's just by being bossy as fuck about it. Like, you know, drink water. Don't make me tell you twice. Um, it's been really effective. The bitches in my life are really into it. So, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could go on, but I don't know. There's a lot. Okay. Dago. Yeah. So I think for me, most important is acknowledging where I come from. Right. And so I always lead with the fact that I am undocumented and walked across two countries and feel proud about that and got sunburned probably but i don't remember (laughs) um i think it's important for me to acknowledge that i I am a a queer person right like understanding that i am masculine presenting but there is a lot of things i think in my life that i want to make sure i make space for right and that's also part of like making space for my femininity and i think growing up um with very conservative parents and and coming from a very small town of about 500, it was very hard for me to really grasp the concept of queerness and like really just being open, right, to everyone out there. Um, And I think about three, no, about four years ago, right, I started reading more about the history of LGBT people and indigenous cultures prior to colonization. So, um, I was super excited to to learn, right, like the important and amazing roles that uh, or indigenous uh, ancestors had in this country. Right. And I think part of part of my journey right now is making sure that I'm reclaiming and making space for um, for queerness, whatever that may look like and, and making sure that we're holding a space where you don't necessarily have to be men or women. Right. You can be any gender that that you that you choose um and far more than that i think it's important for me to um to um acknowledge that uh, i am also a spiritual being right so i think that that is an important piece that i think a lot of the times i forget to mention but um it is important because i understand that my journey as a queer person uh and my journey of liberation lives in all of my trauma so every day that i I wake up, right? I have to retell my story and come out of the closet and come out of the shadows is um, reliving all that trauma. But I understand that as I walk that path, I'm also um, walking towards my liberation and that's exciting. And it's going to take a lot of healing, but Mm. I'm ready. Some pieces of each of your identity that are kind of um, invisibilized. That is not a word. I made it one. Um, (laughs) But like... and genders (laughs) i do what the fuck i want um but like you know Vern, you talk about being chronically ill like but there's not like a t-shirt for that like there's you know it's not that it's that super visible well and also you're non-binary but you're femme presenting and so you know in some ways your non-binary and identity might be invisibilized 
and even though there, you know, Dago, you talk about like there are a lot of white people here for sure, but there's also a lot of you know Latinx folks here, and mm-hmm. so having documents or not having documents can be sort of that invisible thing. So talk about a little bit about how you navigate that space where you have some parts of your identity that are visible and some parts of your identity that are invisible, and like how do you how do you move in the world with that i I don't i don't totally know what the question is but (laughs) there's something about invisible things that are really important to you and so how do you um interact with those things i guess yeah i think so one of the things right in thinking about undocumented people is clearly not visible who has documents or not Mm -hmm. Um, but i think for me it's important to to leave with that right because i think for the longest a long time in my life that was um, a place of fear, right? And so I, I have decided to be unapologetic about being undocumented and claiming space because I feel like that is the way, uh, one, to knock out or knock down doors, uh, but also to create a space for other people. And so um, I think it's just naming things, right? Naming my undocumented queer, brown, short body um, <laughs> that is beautiful. <laughs> uh, it's important. And, and then I think when when I am able to embrace all of those fears, I think I also, I, I'm hoping that I'm making space for other short, brown, undocumented um, bodies to be able to be like, yeah, I'm short, brown, and whatever, you know? I'm powerful, yeah. so. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm also short. Um, <laughs> Sam, we have you out. I'm, uh, I say I'm five feet, uh, but, you know, four eleven and a half uh, is true. So, um, yeah, being an AFAB, a non-binary femme, and it's interesting because there are ways that I feel um, that, like, other trans folks will see me as trans sometimes, um, maybe more so here in Seattle. Um, A great story that I have about Phoenix is the time that the uh, trans support group organization there, who I love, they do great work, right? We can hold these like multiple truths of your wonderful people and you did this fucked up thing. Um, (laughs) The board... um, who knew me, most of them knew me and my then partner, um, who's also non-binary, and we're, we're no longer together, but I like to think that we were like the non-binary power couple in Phoenix a few years ago, <laughs> um, just because there weren't many non-binary couples uh, in Phoenix at the time. Um, but so I had like done workshops and presentations and stuff um, like at their support groups, um, they'd see me like talk in the community. They like, you know, knew who I was. We were friends on Facebook, whatever. Um, and I always center my work around like doing gender workshops and stuff. And like as a non-binary person, um, you know, this is how I invite you to think about gender with me or whatever. Um, and the board nominated me for an award. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. <laughs> as an ally to the trans community, oh. um, and I had to, I had to tell them that I wasn't eligible um, because I myself am trans. <laughs> Surprise, um, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, uh, so awkward moment all around. I think, I hope, um, 
I hope that it wasn't terrible for them, but I hope it was awkward for them is what I will say um, because it was heckin' awkward for me um, to go from feeling like I was really seen in the community, um, you know, being interact uh, invited to do workshops and things like that. And then like, oh, like we are, we're nominating you for this award we have for an ally to the trans community. Um, and also knowing that in Phoenix at the time, which was just a few years ago, that um, not that like getting awards is important to me. I mean, it makes my CV looks good, look good, which might eventually get me a job maybe. Um, but knowing that like at that point in Phoenix, I really doubted that any non-binary person would win an award for a trans person um, just because of all my experiences as a non-binary person in the trans and queer community in Phoenix at the time. Um, so, you know, the organization did like switch my nomination over to the um, award for a trans person to get um, and I didn't get it, which is fine. Um, but going from that or even having other trans and queer people that I date or that I've worked with, um, even other non-binary people sometimes um, misgendering me or um, telling me things like, you know, oh, your legal name is so pretty. Why can't I call you that? Um, things like that. Like even within the, the community, it's really interesting um, being a, an AFAB non-binary femme where people look at me and like, this is a part of what happens. It's like, you look at me and you can tell, you think you can tell what genitals I was born with. So you think that you know my identity or whatever. Um, but I really don't feel like, yeah, like I feel super trans, right? But other people don't see that. And then there's the other piece of um, my chronic illness, which um, the symptoms include things like I have them written down. I'm like scrolling so that I can remember. Mm -hmm. uh, but like memory issues, um, word finding. So you'll hear me sometimes like pick the wrong word and have to replace it. Or sometimes I'll just say the wrong word and not realize it. Um, but stuff like hair falling out, pain, stiffness, digestive fun times, weird sensations like tingling um, and all of that. Um, there's weird stuff like my knees are slightly double jointed, which can result in um, leg pain actually is something I learned. Lots of weird stuff. Um, but all of that stuff, which people don't see uh, until they see me walking with a cane. And then they see me and I'm 32 now, but I think I still look younger than that is what I'm told. And so they see someone that they think is like mid twenties or whatever. And even if they thought I was in my thirties, you know, walking with a cane and you get a lot of questions. Um, and then there's just also this interaction between my chronic illness and my gender in that if I try to bind or even wear um, like a sports bra, um, it causes like debilitating pain. And if I can get out of the house and through the day like that, then it puts me in bed um, or in even like even worse debilitating pain for the next like two to four ish days. Mm. Um, so things that I would do to affirm my gender, um, I can't do because then, you know, I can't move and I'm in so much pain that I just don't want to exist anymore. So that's not good for me either. Um, yeah, I think that there's also like this piece of my identity um, around, I used to do burlesque. Um, and so there's this interesting thing that happens when you do a form of sex work and then also have 
like a professional job um, where your identity, when I'm in the, like the performing space of doing burlesque, um, my professional identity is erased. And then when I'm in the professional world, um, my identity as a burlesque performer and sex worker is erased. Um, so that's been really interesting as I um, go deeper into academia as well. <laughs> yeah, I can, <laughs> I can see that review showing up on Rate My Professor. Right. Like, like, it, <laughs> like I found my professor's burlesque profile. Um, and we also know that like a lot of the like Rate My Professor and course evaluations um, when you are, when you have any kind of like marginalized identity, um, you don't do as well mm, on yeah, those. Yeah. <laughs> how, how does um, how does safety uh, come into your daily lives? Because um, you both have um, you know, different, you both have identities that intersect with dominant culture in ways that um, can be really precarious. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know how how much access you feel you have to safety um, and what allies can do, you know, to contribute to creating more safety for you. Yeah, I was, so this, so this year, um, well, I guess I have a lot of experience doing um, like workshops and trainings and um, teaching and all of that. And something I noticed this year is that when I'm giving, like when I'm in front of a group of people and I'm giving a lecture or a workshop or whatever, um, where I, you know, have to, or if I'm facilitating and I have to call on people as they like raise hands, I'm really sensitive to any movement out of the corner of my eye. And the way I handled this in the moment, um, and my work really centers on trans people, like in trans experiences. So I'm also you know, always talking about trans stuff and sometimes including my own experience and uh, my work and whatever. But I've, in the past, I've like really just taken like a sense of humor about it and said to like the the people there like, oh, you know, haha, um, I'm like a gazelle when there's a group of people, like any movement out of the corner of my eye and I think you're raising your hand to, to chime in um, and maybe you're just playing with your hair or touching your pen or something. Um, and then when I was, teaching this quarter, um, and I was teaching a, a class um, called Social Work Practice with Trans and Queer Communities. And I had 18 students and 15 of them were are queer or trans themselves. Um, and, but, so generally my understanding is that they come from a slightly different background of mine. They're like my age, some of them a little bit younger, some of them a little bit older, um, some of them like, uh, you know, in their very early 20s or whatever. Um, but I realized that maybe some things that I thought were clear to them about my experience as a trans person, um, a trans and queer person living in places like Nebraska and Arizona, is that they didn't realize that when I was making that joke around, you know, oh, I'm a gazelle, I see this movement out of the, the side of my eye and I think you're raising your hand. They didn't realize that that was like rooted in a trauma response of, you know, I see movement out of the side of my eye and I'm like really in tune to that and really aware of what's happening. Um, and that comes out of, you know, being bullied in high school and junior high. Um, and I think it is really still surprising to me that I haven't been um, 
more seriously physically assaulted than I have. Like I've been pushed and shoved. Um, this girl in junior high used to like rub her snot on me. Um, some like once someone tried to throw a brick at me, but they weren't strong enough, so it landed like six feet in front of me. I was like, that is not threatening. Um, but all of these ways of like having attempted physical assault or being pushed or shoved, which might be thought of as physical assault that were um, like really normal to me resulted in me being hypervigilant to stuff I see out of the corner of my eye. So in that, it's something that is on my mind like every moment of every day. Um, and so I often, I still, I'm pretty old school. I still carry a switchblade, things like that. Um, I'm really, I'm still like careful about people knowing where I live, um, all of that. Like, you know, if I'm in a crowd of people, I get a little anxious, things like that. Um, so it's all, it's on my mind all of the time. And it was interesting to me that, um, like even other queer and trans, like mostly other, um, cis queer people, um, like didn't see that about my experience. So, and then also like with having, um, like done burlesque and there are pictures out there of me, um, mostly naked, right. Which like I'm cool with, but other people aren't cool with. There's also like now we're in this era of um, FOSTA and SESTA, which are bills that just uh, recently passed that make, uh, basically that make it so that websites are legally liable for what people are using them for. So if you're using Grindr um, or Facebook uh, for anything sex work related, um, Grinder or, or Facebook or whatever is legally liable for that. And so a lot of people I've seen have been complaining about, oh, all these websites are updating their uh, terms of service and their policies and I'm getting so many emails about it. Oh, so annoying. Um, and it's happening right after FOSTA and SESTA was passed and we've seen things like Craigslist personals got taken down, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't see a lot of people that, um, don't have a personal connection to sex work talking about these things and how it impacts the safety of sex workers. And we also know that sometimes trans people do sex work out of necessity because we can't get um, like jobs in a, a, the regular economy, I'm doing air quotes, because um, sex work is considered like an alternative economy. Um, and sometimes trans people do sex work because it can be a really affirming place for us um, in our identities. So I don't see a lot of people talking about the impacts of that on the safety of trans people, uh, particularly trans women of color who are doing sex work or have done sex work. Uh, that's something I think that allies could do is stay more tuned into that. Um, I mean, there's so, I've, there's so much allies could do, <laughs> but that has been um, on my mind a lot recently, yeah, specifically. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess thinking about security, right? I think, one, I think for me and for many of the community that I work with, right? I think one of the biggest fears is, one, I think the first one that I can think of is speaking Spanish, right? I think with the current administration and everything that we have seen, right, uh, I have noticed myself um, not wanting to speak Spanish as much because I fear, right, for I don't know who's in the room. I don't know 
if all these white people are crazy and are going to cause a scene. And so I think for me, it has been very real that even when I'm with my partner, right, I find myself defaulting to speaking English. Um, and it was true. We went to Flagstaff, and I don't know people in Flagstaff, so it was like, whatever. And so he walks in there, like, yelling in Spanish, all happy. And I was like, what is this fool doing? <laughs> like, why is he speaking Spanish, right? And then I had to check myself because it was it was very real. I was like, why am I thinking this, right? And I think I was experiencing um, fear, right? And so I think that's one of the one of the ways that I feel like I'm not secure. And there's not much people can do or I can do, right? I think it it is um it is a real thing. And it also I think every day, right? I think when I wake up every interaction, getting in the car, um, going to the store, like it's it's really I'm putting myself out there every time I'm not at home, right? Because I can have an interaction with the police, get pulled over, and then put in deportation proceedings. And so I think for me and for many of, of our communities, um, we live in this constant state of emergency where we are checking ourselves, right? And I can think of, like, when I was growing up as a as a young queer child, right? I think most of my life I didn't spend it trying to play. I spent it, like looking at my hand movements right and how i was walking if i was walking right if my hand was in the right place um because i didn't want to be judged and i think now it's not necessarily my hand i think now is making sure that i really feel like we're we're all in hiding right i feel like the this whole um administration has really put undocumented people uh in a very hard place right because we uh we have emergency protocols if the police shows up or like if some somebody is detained right we have um we're like emergency contacts for who who are we gonna call if any of any of our membership gets detained right what do you do if the if you see immigration coming um all of these different things that that we've we've been having to design because um we understand that this these states are not safe for us, right? And I think um, it is very clear that we're being hunted um, and and then deported to, to for some people, right? And for some trans uh, and non-binary people to their deaths, right? And even here, we just had the case of Roxana uh, Fernandez who, who died in immigration detention because she wasn't given the proper treatment. So... So I think we are seeing and living through really hard times where security for us is um, it's a luxury. I think there's very few of us who really feel um, secure in, in our bodies and in in this state. Yeah, yeah. Because security and safety are so unavailable to so many trans and queer folks, um, where do you both find? liberation um and how do you find that like where where are you experiencing that in your lives i can say it's drag right so i do drag and so i'm a performer so i think anytime i am able to put on two wigs six inch heels and <laughs> be five six <laughs> i am excited and i feel free <laughs> so uh you know performance really has allowed me to to experience freedom. I think for and and for those five ten minutes that you're up there, right? You are 
experiencing something different. You are able to experience life in a different way. And uh, not only you, but everyone around you, right? You get to give people a break. And so I think for me, uh, those moments are, are very important. That's, I think, that's why as Transcript Pueblo, we constantly have these cultural events and performances because I understand the power that performance has in building community and also um, building successful movements. And so... Um, but also, right, when we're thinking about trans and uh, queer and non-binary people, for us and for for many of our members who come from from different countries who don't know what LGBT means, right? Because that that is like a that is not a indigenous way of being, <laughs> gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans, right? There was third or four or five genders in some of our some of our um, nations, and so. It has allowed people to really figure out where do they feel most comfortable, right? And I know for us, we've had some cases where people start performing and they're like, actually, like, you know, this is where this is where I live. Like, this is where my happy place is. Like, what does this mean, right? And then pair that with or gender identity training they're like actually you know what i identify as trans right so and because we have a free clinic we can like all right let's start you let's talk to a doctor let's see what this means have have him answer questions and let's begin your transition if that's what you want and so i think um liberation lives there right in a wig and six inch heels (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) i mean i think that for me performing also played a part and it was interesting for me um as like finding figuring out that I was non-binary um because I started I started performing when I was like 20 um doing like being um a femme performer which I think is now it's like it differs regionally but some people might um hear it being called like a diva um or like a bio queen which I hate uh, that word for myself. Um, but you're basically, it's, it's kind of like the way I understood it, the origins of femme performing is that, um, a lot of drag Kings, um, which are, you know, generally, um, for people who might not know is it's like basically women who perform as men, um, is like a boiled down, simplified, sometimes true thing. Um, so drag Kings (laughs) are maybe short, you know, maybe they're like five, five or something or five, six. Um, and drag queens are, uh, you know, present company excluded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when drag kings would want to do duets, right, like that would it would kind of um, impact the illusion in a way that they didn't want because you have the the king who's uh, like five, five or whatever. And then you have the drag queen who's like six foot or whatever. Um, and so femme performers uh, came into play and also just to do our own thing. Um, and so that is like generally understood, which is not how I treat it, but it's generally understood to be like a woman who's performing as a woman um, and sometimes characterizing feminists or femininity similar in the way that a drag queen does. And so I started femme performing when I was like 20. And then I was a drag king when I was like, I don't know, like 22-ish or whatever. Um, And for a while I was like doing both. So it'd be like the same show and I would switch from being a drag king to being a femme 
but so I would be, I was a drag king and a femme performer for a while. And then I switched to just femme performing. And then I got into burlesque. And for me, performing taught me that um, performing as a woman was just as much a performance for me as was performing as a man. Um, so I don't know if I would say that I feel like that I felt safe when I was doing those things. Um, because when you're doing burlesque, and a lot of my performance was in the queer community, um, but still when you're, when you're performing uh, burlesque and you're stripping, um, you're still treated a certain way sometimes. Um, and it, oftentimes for me, it was from um, cis gay men, um, but also sometimes um, cis lesbians uh, weren't great about boundaries is what I'll say. So you can, you know, you get, uh, you get skillful at playing it off and all of that. Um, but it helped me find my own identity. Uh, but it's interesting because I don't know if I would say that I felt safe during it. Um, and then here in Seattle, we have a queer nude beach, which is where I want to spend most of my summer. Um, and it's like right in the city. So it's, it's like, uh, I think 20 minutes from where I live now. Um, and that is a place where I feel really good because there's all sorts of bodies, um, and, you know, some people are naked, some people are fully clothed, whatever, um, and everyone's having a good time. And it's unfortunate because um, what's happening right now in Seattle, besides my dog barking, what's happening here in Seattle right now is um, as white people are gentrifying um, historically POC neighborhoods because of the impact that Amazon um, and other big companies are having on like the rental and, and housing market. Um, straight people are then like in turn, there's like white people are gentrifying POC neighborhoods and straight people are gentrifying um, the historically queer neighborhood. It's like this like domino effect that's happening. That's really uh, terrible to watch happen. And it's a really complicated situation, right? And so what's happening is that the, the queer neighborhood is becoming less queer um, and that's impacting spaces like the Queer Nude Beach um, where, you know, in Seattle, you're, it's legal to be naked unless, you, uh, unless someone is offended and complains. Um, it's similar, <laughs> similar, it's, very, it's similar to the knife laws because I looked it up um, when I moved here, because like I carry a, a knife a lot of times, so I looked up the knife laws, and it's sort of the same thing. Like I can legally, um, like visibly, be carrying a knife of a certain size, unless someone becomes afraid, and then it's not legal for me to have that knife anymore. Uh, so like knives and bodies, and I don't know, it's 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 weird. Um, but so already this season, which. Um, I know that Phoenix is very hot in Seattle. We're kind of teetering between like the sixties and seventies. Um, and which feels warmer here because it's so humid and you're cold all winter. Um, but so beach season has just started, but already um, one of the people, like one of the houses that is at like near the queer beach um, has called to complain. And so police have come to the queer beach and said, you need to put clothes on. And we're like, we're at the nude beach. <laughs> like, if you don't want to see naked people, don't buy a mansion next to the nude beach, you know. Um, but I feel good when I'm there. <laughs> that was a, I feel like that was a sad answer, but <laughs> I feel good in that area when I'm there. 
uh, so based on our on our timing, we try and keep episodes uh, between like thirty five and forty minutes, uh, thirty five to forty five minutes. So we're we're close to the end here. Anything you'd like to share or last thoughts? Uh, I would say that there's a lot of stories about brown and black communities not being accept accepting of trans and queer identities. Um, and while that might be true, it is also true that historically black and brown tra- black and brown trans queer people held uh, very important roles in their native lands. And so I I I I want to challenge and ask the community um, to be patient and to hold space for people who are in a, in this journey of understanding trans and queer identities. Uh, and I say that because um, I, I the more I work in this social justice environment and the more I do this work, I realize that there's a group of people who are too down, right, and too politicized that... Um, that if you don't say the right term, the right thing, you are you are out outed or out whatever that word is, right? You you no longer belong in the circle or you lose relevance. And so I think that that, that we should be careful of that um, because um, if we want to build a movement that is strong, uh, we all have to come along, and that means that there has to be spaces for people who are barely starting this journey of understanding trans and queer identities and that means that they're gonna fuck up every single day they're gonna get pronouns (laughs) wrong they're gonna they're gonna call you um offensive things but i think if we we can provide a space where we can hold each other um we might reach equality faster that that if we discard all those um all those people who are just beginning their journey thank you yeah i think that what I want to say is that these like systems of oppression and and ways that people are um, marginalized in our communities impact all of us. Um, So just because you think that you might not be like the current target of something that's happening, um, whether it's like a specific act or a policy um, or like something that's happening in your neighborhood, whatever, um, just because you're not like the current target doesn't mean that it's not also impacting you. Um, so like specifically like thinking about um, gender, for example, I've been thinking um, this school year a lot about like feminism and is feminism fighting for women's rights or is it fighting for marginalized genders? Um, so like women and non-binary people and gender expansive folks, or is it fighting to end the fact that gender is used as a way to oppress people, um, which also impacts like cis men who aren't allowed to like cry and um, express their emotions. Um, And then sometimes those emotions come out in really harmful ways, right? So um, yeah, I think just that like we're all connected as as hippy dippy as that sounds. Um, (laughs) These things impact all, like I'm not a touchy feely person, but when I talk about these things, like I get a little bit uh, a little bit touchy feely. Um, so these things are impacting all of us, and um, you know things like FOSTA and has to um, keep an eye on that stuff um, because people have been, you know, talking all about the handmaid, Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, um, but haven't been paying as much attention to the small steps. Or for some of us, these are really big steps. Um, 
that are happening that are really starting to like mirror things that we see in these like dystopian uh, TV shows. Yeah, definitely. Thank you both so much for your time today um, and for sharing your stories and your insight and amazingness with our audience and with us. Uh, we really appreciate everything that you've shared and just, you know, you both of you doing you in the world and uh, making the queer and trans communities a better place. Thank you. Yeah, this was a fantastic conversation. So thank you both so much for your time. And thank you for braving technology, Vern, to <laughs> Skype in with us. Uh, it was fantastic to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you. For this week's Ally Moment, uh, we want to talk about supporting uh organizations, companies, and makers who are trans. We think that a critical part of being an ally is supporting the economic uh, livelihood of trans folks um, through either our individual efforts uh, or our efforts as organizations and as communities. Yeah. So we talked about, uh, last week, we talked about Sephora and Lush, both putting forward campaigns that serve trans folks. And that's one way you can do, you know, you can shout them out on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you, Twitter, whatever you use, and just, you know, say that you really support their support of the trans community. That's one way. Um, But there are other ways like to actually, you know, make sure that money goes to the trans community. And so, you know, trans folks are statistically under employed um, and often don't have access to the same level of economic freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so putting dollars into trans organizations um, and queer organizations is one way that you can help uh, shift that narrative for trans folks. Absolutely. And then supporting uh, companies that either have trans inclusive policies, right. Yes. Um, or are uh, founded by or led by trans folks and queer folks. Um, you know, for Sam and I were discussing, um, you know, we, uh, selected a trans artist um, and asked to be able to use their song right as a part of uh, this podcast so that we could help hopefully uh, support their work um, and their making of um, their livelihood in the world. Um, you know, if we had found, we'd love to support other trans uh and queer folks by, you know, using software that people develop who are trans and queer when it's available or, you know, any of that, any of that really makes a huge difference in, um, addressing that economic, that lack of economic equity for trans and queer folks. Yeah. And I saw this really like dramatically, I was for pride in, in Phoenix pride is in April because it's way too hot this month to do pride except yes. for in Flagstaff. <laughs> um, and so in Phoenix pride is in April. And so I went to buy a t-shirt that said trans rights are human rights. And I could not find a t-shirt that said trans rights are human rights that was made buy a trans company or even a queer company. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up not buying a t-shirt because it just seemed so ridiculous to buy a t-shirt like that from a non-trans inclusive company. Like that just didn't make sense. And so um, the more that we can utilize, you know, the more that we as the trans community and then also you as our allies can utilize your dollars to improve outcomes for trans people, um, the more equality is possible. Please tell me a story